0: morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. I think it's page 12 in the, the Bibles that are in the pews. Uh, if you're just visiting us today, we as a church have set out on a journey that's going to last for a whole year, working our way right through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, last week, we covered or we attempted to cover five chapters Today, we're just looking at nine verses. Uh, How many people have seen the movie Babel? Okay, quite a few, which uh, stars Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. It was released in 2007, and I can remember sitting in Donegal, watching it with a few friends. And the reason I remember it was because I found it incredibly confusing. It felt like it was all over the place. For a start, there were four stories set in four countries In five languages, there was English, there was Arabic, there was Spanish, there was Japanese and there was sign language. And if you'd asked me at the time what was the film all about, uh, I would have struggled to tell you. In fact, let me be honest, I hadn't a clue and it certainly isn't on my list of top ten films ever. But the title really intrigued me and as I watched the film, I picked up enough during the two hours to know that there was some connection between it and the biblical story found in Genesis 11. And so I went online this week and I found these comments about the movie. The premise of the movie centres around the difficulty and the frustration we all feel with our inability to communicate with those around us. The movie is about how people of different cultures have trouble communicating with each other the different stories in the movie revolve around language barriers and the difficulties that those language barriers cause and as a result of reading various things I quickly discovered that not only is the title connected but the underlying message of the film has deeply influenced its producer its creator its maker and so this morning as part of this journey we have come to Babel. That well known and that engaging incident about a city and a tower. And what it actually says to us about the origin of languages and the confusion that's caused by language barriers. Or, is that what that story is really all about? Is it? Whenever you think of the Tower of Babel, do you immediately think, ah, that's where languages came from i want us to try to think a little differently about it this morning but before we read the text i want to pick up from where we left off last week noah and seven others have survived or not so much survived rather they have been rescued from the flood that has totally wiped out every other living thing from the face of the earth and noah worships as he should And then God blesses him, plus his three sons. And God then reissues a mandate that he had first given to Noah. And here it is. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And alongside that, God gives these two words. Two very important words. Never again. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, is what God said. And as He establishes this decision via an unqualified covenant, He also then offers a graphic and a breathtaking sign of that covenant a rainbow. And as we said last week, the rainbow was given to remind God of His covenant. Not so much to remind us, but actually the text teaches us that the reason God gave this sign was to remind him of the decision that he had taken never again to destroy all living creatures. So you could say that based on these post-flood promises, that the future in a sense looks pretty good for all creation, for all humanity. Things are on the up. And yet, as we're about to see, it's not that long before things start to unravel and start to go wrong. And God has to step in or step down. And once again, judgment becomes a reality. So let's read the story. And as we often do here at Windsor, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. So let's stand together. Genesis 11, verses just 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain near Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have been able to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Do grab a seat. So, how many languages are there in the world today? Who can tell me? Some of you will know the answer to this. How many languages are there, living languages, in the world today? Go on, take a guess even if you don't know. Dorothy, you hold fire for a moment. Okay? That's very impressive, uh, Trevor. Yeah, this this thing called the Ethnologue, which is a comprehensive reference volume that catalogs all known living languages, actually says there are 6,900 and nine living languages. That's one language for every eight hundred and sixty two thousand people on the earth. Although I realise that many of these languages and some of them will be classed as dialects, languages that have evolved but are still quite closely to each other. How many languages are spoken in Europe? How many languages are spoken in Europe? Six thousand nine hundred and nine in the world, many in Europe? Guess fifteen? Okay. Anyone else want to hazard a guess? thousand 234 (laughs) languages 94 percent of languages are spoken by only six percent of the world's population which tells us that there are hundreds of languages with just a few thousand or even a few hundred speakers now who can tell me which language is spoken by the most people mandarin 845 million speakers english is one million behind Spanish, and it's at 328 million as its first, as people's first language. So as we sit here in 2011, knowing all of that, the opening verse of Genesis chapter 11 is bizarre. Now, the world had one language and a common speech. So there was no language barriers to negotiate, no difficulties. In communicating. Which is light years away from our context. And it says as people moved eastward they found a plain in Shinar. Which as the footnote in your Bible will say that's Babylonia. And it says they settled there. And there's a real sense of relief in that word. Because you see it's good to be settled. Or is it? Anyway, the people got their heads together and they decided to make bricks and launch this really ambitious building project. They're going to build a city with a tower. Now, back in Genesis 4, 17, it says Cain built a city. So this wasn't the first city and these weren't the original urban constructionists. But clearly, they were people with skill and ability, technical skill combined with sufficient architectural and mathematical knowledge to begin such a major venture. And building a tower and building a city in and of itself wasn't a problem. Engaging in fact in such an exciting enterprise was incredibly creative and therefore you could say what they were just doing was they were just reflecting an aspect of what it meant to be made in the image of God. God was creative. They were made in his image. They were just being creative. But what is the problem is their motive. It's the reason behind building that rings the alarm bells. That's what eventually gets them into all kinds of trouble. Listen again to their thinking. Come, they say to themselves, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So that we may make a name for ourselves. And the immediate question God asks is, "Where's their reference to God?" Like if they had said, "Tell you what, let's come and build a city with a tower to the glory of God." Chances are they would have finished the project. But right from the outset, it's all about them. It's a pure selfish ambition. It was an act of arrogance, pride. It's another attempt to achieve autonomy, to do it my way, without reference to God, to depend on themselves to define who they were, to become the centre of their world, the world, to sideline God at best or totally ignore Him at worst. And that was sin. And the reality is, not a lot has changed. God has given man this ability to do incredible things, to be creative in technology and science and medicine, construction and art. But whenever the focus of what we do and the motive behind what we do becomes about us, rather than, to quote the New Testament, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. well, whenever it all becomes about me, we've got it wrong. We're out of sync and we're heading for disaster. And so there is a very real personal application and challenge here regarding what exactly is the intention of our hearts? What is the reason for doing what we do? The reason for doing all we do. And as we discovered last week, the kind of rather discomforting thing in some ways is that God knows the intention of our hearts God sees beyond the external we can sort of hide that from each other but but God knows the inclinations of our hearts as he said as he observed the people of Noah's day so God knows why we do what we do and you know if we are building something whether that's our careers or our reputation for example in order to make a name for ourselves then it's going to be in vain and you may end up famous even rich well thought of by lots of people but if your life and its construction and there are many ways that's what most of us are doing we're building a life but if it's been only about you then it's not going to outlast you you may even gain the whole world but in the process lose your soul And in the long term, the very long term, the eternal, if you like, that's a frightening prospect. What we build matters. Of course it does. But why we build is critical. What's our motive? But even taking it beyond a personal level, what about us as a church? What is the motive behind everything we do? Particularly as a church church, that's about to embark on a significant building program. We must never fall into the trap of doing anything that is to make a name for ourselves as a church or to exalt ourselves. We must do everything to the glory of God and to serve this church's mission of spreading the knowledge and love of God to people within here, out there, and right across this planet. What's our motive for everything we do at Windsor Baptist Church? It's got to be for the glory of God. I believe that is our motive for what we do here. But we've got to keep one another accountable. We've got to keep that as our focus. But the people of Shinar, Babylonia, they're building on seriously shaking ground. And the writer of the story in Genesis 11 is actually making it clear that their city... And their tar were actually doomed before construction even started because their explicit intention in setting out on this was just to make a name for themselves. And it's a common phrase, isn't it? Go ahead, make a name for yourself. It's something we hear from time to time. But it's got trouble written all over it. Pride always has and always does come before a fall. And I think it's really interesting how... This stands in stark contrast to chapter 2 of the very next chapter, or verse 2 of the very next chapter, where actually God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. It's not about making a name for ourselves. God, that's his business. Back to verse 4, because there's a second motive behind this project. Come, they say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so we may make a name for ourselves and then here's the second motive so that we'll not be scattered over the face of the whole earth see it seems that these people wanted to stick together and immediately I think to myself but what is the problem with that what is so bad about the desire to be united is that not a great thing In fact, is unity not a really high biblical value? So what's the problem here? Well, to get our heads around this, we need to go back to the mandate that I mentioned earlier, that God gave to Noah, but originally gave to Adam. Be fruitful and increase in number, and then what? Fill the earth. You see, at one level, this desire not to be scattered Blatantly kicked against and resisted God's purpose for creation. These people didn't want to spread abroad. They didn't want to fill the earth. And so the city and the tower are attempts at self serving unity which resists God's scattering activity. And again, there's definitely a sense coming across here of listen, listen, God, we'll do it our way. We want to determine our own destiny. And again, it sounds so familiar echoes of 21st century mindsets. They had become, or they were in danger of becoming, quite inward-looking, quite insular, quite parochial. They were intent on settling down, going nowhere, and being comfortable. And you see, the thing is, as you read God's Word, you realize that that is such a dangerous place to get to with God. The contrast again here between the start of the next chapter is striking. Where God's called to Abraham is to what? It's to go. It's to step away. Step outside of your comfort zones. Leave what's familiar. Don't settle down. Don't become comfortable. And that sense of living beyond beyond ourselves is... And not getting settled is a constant challenge of Scripture. Even the famous last words of Jesus made, makes this explicit. Go. Go into all the world. And make disciples. You see, as a church, we exist. To facilitate the sending out, not the coming in. We welcome people in, Yes. But we welcome people in so that they might be transformed by the love of God. And then we send them out to proclaim that life-changing, life-transforming love to others. Let's never get comfortable. Let's never become settled, become provincial in our thinking. Inward-looking. Let's always be a church that faces outwards. A church without walls. And embrace that constant willingness to go To step away from what we are familiar with. To step outside of our comfort zones. To allow ourselves to become uncomfortable at times. Because that seems to be so often the direction God takes his people in. But getting back to the narrative, we discover that things do get underway and building does commence. But then you come to verse 5. And verse 5 is the center point of this story. It's the hinge moment where we read about a divine site inspection. And it says that the Lord came down to see the city and tower that they were building. Now remember, the intention here was to build something that would reach to the heavens. Again, I think sometimes we've read that story, we tell that story as if literally they were building it right up to the heavens. I think we've misgot that. I misinterpreted that a little bit. It was meant to be just tall. It was meant to be imposing. It was meant to be striking, yes. It was meant to be seen for miles. That was what this was all about. And yet from God's perspective, from his vantage point, and I love this, he could barely see it. And so he had to come down, and there's almost a hint of sarcasm. A real sense of irony in what the writer says here, and as John Hartley comments, whereas the builders aim for heaven Their work was so minuscule that God had to come down to earth in order to see it. And what this verse reminds us, what Genesis 11 verse 5 reminds us, is that God is vast. And I mean, we've already picked that up this morning as Peter introduced the service this morning. God is vast. His greatness no one can fathom, according to the psalmist, Psalm 145. And as we read in Isaiah 40, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket... Like dust on the weighing scales. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And what are his people like? Grasshoppers. You know, the danger is when you lose sight of God's greatness, you actually do think He can make a name for yourself. When you just lose sight of how vast God is, how mysterious God is, How indescribable, uncontainable. Then you get that place where you think, you know something, maybe I can make a name for myself. You lose perspective. You forget who's who. Plus, whenever you build something for yourself in order to impress others, and whenever you do that without reference to God, there will come a time, and I find this really sobering, but there will come a time when the judge of all the earth will struggle to see it. Now, I don't mean God won't be able to see what you've built and what you've stored up. But I do mean that God will struggle to see it as having any real, lasting, long-term, eternal value. Whatever you do, don't spend your life building castles in the sand. And so God comes down and he says something before he expresses judgment but what god says does at a first read seem incredibly odd look at verse six with me if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they will plan to do will be impossible for them i don't know how you read that verse but it's almost as if god's wanting to prevent progress That God is wanting to limit what human beings might be able to achieve. That in some way God is afraid or threatened by man's united potential. And so God needs to do something as an act of self-defense. But that is so not what is going on here. This is actually about preserving even saving humanity. You see, left to our own devices, without any checks or balances in place, God realises that our arrogance and our attempts at self-salvation know no bounds. God could see that this purely human project, without any reference to him, was going to end in complete disaster. You see, what they were doing wasn't a threat to God as if it would be was a threat to themselves and so as well as judgment here there's actually a hint of mercy just a hint and also a hint of grace in what happens next see god could see where this was going and god knew it wasn't pleasant and so in order to prevent things from getting worse much much worse god actually stepped in in other words he stepped in to save them from themselves And as David Atkinson comments, God's judgment in dividing this community is also a restraint. God could see what they were capable of doing. The damage that they could cause to a community and to one another, and he stepped in to save them. Man's ability to do amazing things is impressive. But without reference to God, man's ability to unite and do horrendous things is deeply distressing. And history is littered with examples. And here, God stepped in to save them from themselves. There's times, as I look back over history, I wish God had stepped in to save man from himself. And done more. But that's God's prerogative. But here he stepped in. At other times, from a human perspective, he seemed to step back. So there is a preventative and protective dimension to God's intervention that does need to be acknowledged here. So don't miss, yes, this mixture of judgment, but also of grace and mercy in this divine act. And so God does divide this community. And he does it by confusing their languages. And it says, so that they do not understand each other. And I know some commentators will say, actually, it's not so much that they would not understand each other, that the actual word is really that they would not listen to one another. And I know you could go off on a tangent of just about the importance of listening, and it is an important tangent in some ways to go off on, that actually part of the problem and the breakdown in so many communities and societies is because we just simply do not listen to each other. It's not even that we don't understand one another, that we actually don't take time to listen to one another. And then it says God scatters them and their worst fear comes comes true. One of the motives for building this was so that they wouldn't be scattered, and yet it is actually what happens. But something I just want to say as we come near the end of this is this. That the scattering in Genesis 11 is often only seen as a judgment. But it's really important that we also see it as a way of God accomplishing his purposes for creation. Can I I say that again? It's really important because most people think, ah, the scattering, that was judgment, purely, simply judgment. Yes and no. God wanted to fill the earth. This was him accomplishing his purposes. We've got to be incredibly careful we don't become simplistic about the purposes of God as revealed in his word. And then we finally come to verse 9, which is the conclusion towards which the whole narrative, in a sense, has been driving this or that was why they called it Babel. In other words, what this whole writing has been building up to was to explain the name or the word Babel, which sounds very like a Hebrew word for mixed up and confused. And therefore, what you have here is the story of the tar, of the mixed up, the confused, and the scattered. So is this a story simply about the origin of languages? no it is that to a certain extent but it's actually so much more this is a story that carries a strong and continues to carry a very strong social health warning you see whenever a society any society or community fails to live in dependence upon god whenever we rip god out of the center and place ourselves in his place Whenever we try to make a name for ourselves and rely on human achievement and human power without any reference to God, whenever we determine that we're going to be the source of our own security, we're going to reach for the heavens by ourselves, then the outcome is inevitable. The outcome is a fracturing of community, a breakdown of communication, and a growing sense of isolation and confusion. And sadly, that all sounds far too familiar. And depressingly reflective of where it is at today. You see we live in a society, a nation and a world that seems intent on building and progressing and making decisions without referring to God. And without God at the centre, it's no surprise that what we're witnessing all around us is community dysfunction. Communities falling apart. Sense of community Gone, going increasingly. It's no wonder we see so much communication breakdown and this increasing sense of dislocation and disconnection and isolation and confusion. And all I can say in response to that and in response to this as I hold them together is may God have mercy on us. May God have mercy on us. And in terms of where do we go to from here in this story that we're reading together, there's a real lack of hope at the end of verse 9. A real lack of hope. And that's different from previous incidents in primeval history, or the creation narratives as Genesis 1-11 are called. In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, yes. They experienced judgment, definitely. But then God clothed them. And then God allowed them to live outside of Eden. There was grace. There was hope. When Cain murdered Abel, there was judgment, yes. And although we didn't look at it, the Bible tells us that God put a mark on Cain. A mark of protection. Grace and hope. And with the flood, there was judgment. Of course there was, but grace found Noah. And then there was the promise of a new beginning promise of a new day and never again commitment from God to destroy all living creatures as he had done there was hope there was a rainbow but here at Babel all we seem to be left with is disintegration scattering separation and mass confusion there's been sin There's been judgment, and okay, there has been a measure of restraint and protection, a hint of mercy, a hint of grace. But where to from here? Where can this story actually go? In chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, do you end on a bit of a downer? But in some ways, the stage is set for the next scene in the drama. And it's to that we'll turn this evening.